This week on Writers Inc. I really am, it's almost like I don't write the books out of sequence, but in some sense I am a nonlinear writer. And I think the early parts of the creative process are nonlinear. It's why it's why people like note card systems, because they'll get an idea, slap it on the note card, throw it up. They're not quite sure where it's going to land in the story, but it, it lights them up. And it's maybe the idea that brought them to the story to begin with, right? Or it's an idea for a scene or a moment. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. What's new, J.D.? Dude, Wonder Woman is coming to theaters December 16th and coming to HBO December 25th. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just just got the email like an hour ago. Um, so we, we were talking about this. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but you know, a lot of these studios, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. And, and Wonder Woman was, um, it's a $200 million film. You know, they spent a lot of money putting it together and it was supposed to come out, I believe in March and, you know, it's got pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. And I, I guess somebody decided they had to, to pull the plug and, and come up with a plan B and it sounds like this is it. So it's going to hit theaters, you know, uh, third week or the 16th of December. And then one week later, it's coming to HBO. Wow different world huh yeah it's it's crazy um but you know i mean it where everybody's you know kind of getting news at the same time here obviously and with virus or the uh, vaccine you know hopefully panning out at the end of this this month or early next month you know we're still looking at you know probably four to five months of of this before you know things really start to get back to normal and i honestly don't know how many more businesses can hang on through all that yeah i, I think that's optimistic too i mean from yeah. from what i've heard uh the the government plan to roll out the uh, the vaccines are in phases, and it's uh, you know the fourth phase would be sort of quote unquote most of the you know the the normal population people who are not high risk or are in first responder positions, and and that could, that it could be six to seven months before that reaches the the general population. So I agree, man. I think it could be we could be at least um, I mean it could be another year of uncertainty and. A lot of what I'm hearing, like I've, uh, I was listening to a podcast with a a, a world-renowned chef who owns uh, multiple restaurants, and he he said as of right now the restaurant industry is dead as we know it. That he expects 90 to 95 percent of all independent restaurants to be out of business by the end of the year, and wow. that's that's frightening. I mean, when you know he's basically saying that unless you're like an Applebee's or you know some type of national chain or a fast casual. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to weather it. And, and so, you know, if, if we're looking another month or two and most of these restaurants are going to fold, what does that mean for another four or five or eight months of this? It's crazy. Well, I know here in New Hampshire, if I go back um, probably about six weeks to two months, we had, I think, 200 cases total for the entire state, um, which is which is obviously pretty good. Um, but as of this morning, it's 3,700. Um, and it's every day that I look at that total and I know I shouldn't, but I, I do anyway. And it's just every day, it's just, it's ticking up and ticking up. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with people, you know, the weather turning and it getting cold and people being inside and that kind of thing. Um, but there's so many people that I think are just fed up with all of it. And, you know, Thanksgiving is rolling around Christmas and, you know, as much as they should, you know, socially distance and do, you know, small get togethers, I've got a feeling people are going to ignore it. Um, you know, Thanksgiving is, is going to be a catalyst and I think, you know, the hospitals are already being stressed and I can't imagine what they're going to look like in December. My, my, my sister, um, is an administrator at a hospital down in Florida. Um, and, and they're very close to capacity now, you know, be, before anything like that. So it's some um, frightening stuff. It is. And my, my wife is a, a, <clears throat> a lower level, um, administrative assistant at, at the hospital here in Cleveland. And I, I think what, it's being lost on a lot of people, especially people who are sort of fatigued, have pandemic fatigue and, and are like, well, screw this. I'm just going to, we're just going to have Thanksgiving dinner anyways, because we'll be fine. I think what the impact, uh, the ripple effect through the entire hospital system is what's problematic. So, 
you know, yeah, you might not get COVID or you might get it and you might not be, you might not die from it, but the hospitalizations and the intensive care units are being taken by COVID patients and people who get other afflictions or ailments yeah. or in other situations can't get into a hospital. And I think that's the piece that's being lost right now is like, it's not just about COVID. It's about the resources that are being used by this pandemic in hospitals. Yeah, that's a very good point. You could have a heart attack on the sidewalk and there could be a, a no vacancy sign on the, the yeah. hospital door when you get there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not good. So um, industry-wise, I, I don't know how many uh, conferences you've been doing, but obviously everything is virtual at this point. Um, and I've been talking to a lot of people on both sides of that, authors and organizers. And I, you know, there's a lot of fatigue happening there too. I think yeah. you know, the, the idea of you know the virtual conferences when it was new and fresh, I think people were on board with it. Um, but from a presentation standpoint, I know personally, like I'm getting burnt out on doing conferences via Zoom because you know it's just as stressful as doing it in person. Um, and, you know, but I don't feel like I'm getting the same out of it, you know, because you hit the close button and the program's done and you're, you're back at home, you know, like you, yeah. there's, no, there's no talking with the, the other people in the room. Like a lot of the stuff that I really enjoyed about conferences, it, it's gone now. Um, and I know the, uh, the attendance on a lot of these virtual conferences seems to be slipping as well. I think people were on board with, with doing a conference virtually earlier. Um, but it, it sounds like they're just at the point where they're getting burnt out on that too. And, and I think technology wise, when this is all over, I think every conference is going to end up being a mix of both. I think I agree, you know, but, um, for right now, I think people are just kind of, they're, they're just done, you know, across the yep. board, everybody's just done. <laughs> Yeah, the pendulum has swung all the way <laughs> yeah. from one side to the other, and I agree with you. I think it's going to rest somewhere in the middle, and, and I think if you're a conference organizer or workshop designer, you're going to have to have plan for both in-person and virtual aspects of, of anything, at least for the next couple of years. Now, there is one plus side coming out of all this, and that seems to be everybody's productivity is up. You know, when, <laughs> when you're chained to your desk, you know, every, everybody is working, and I, I'm getting so many ARC copies from, from people and, and requests. That I, I get a lot of emails from people. I'm just going to put this out there because, you know, I obviously I had a lot of people that helped me out with my career so far, and, and, and they still are, and I, I do everything that I possibly can to help people out. Um, so when people ask if they can send me a book to blurb, I, I try to read as many of them as I possibly can. Um, so just to put this out there, and we could put something in the show notes, if people are writing a book and they are looking for a blurb, they are more than welcome to send it to me. Um, but I do have a couple of qualifications on, on that. Um, I, I only accept physical copies and I do that on purpose. Uh, and the book itself has to be coming out in multiple formats, um, meaning that it needs to come out in print, it needs to come out in an ebook, and it needs to come out as an audiobook. Um, if I don't see those at least those three formats, then I will typically pass on it. Um, if the editing isn't there, those kind of things, I'll, you know, I, I close the cover on it really quick, but I, I will give everybody a, a shot. You know, every book that, that crosses my desk, I do open it up. I try to, to read through it and see how far I get. Um, so I, I guess in the show notes, we can put an address, um, where people can actually send these to me if they, if they want to try and do that. Um, and I, I read as much as I possibly can. It's just my, my to be read pile is getting crazy and it's getting, getting taller and taller. Um, you know, I get them from my editors, I get them from my agents. Um, and then the people that just, you know, reach out to me via my website, but I, I don't want to stop doing that because it was such a huge thing for me. Um, and, and I know how difficult it is to make that happen. So I just want to put that out there. Man, that's really cool. That is uh, really generous and fair too. I, I, I think that's a, a, a great way to do it. And uh, if I were listening and uh, one of our listeners, man, I'd be making sure I had all my formats ready to go to send you a book. <laughs> Just make sure it's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all good books. Everyone yeah. writes a good book, right? <laughs> What's going on in your world? I uh, knocked out two more chapters of Darwin's Challenge today, so I'm plugging nice. along on that. Uh, I'm past the, the halfway point of the second draft, and I'm hoping uh, by the time the end of the month rolls around that I might be ready to start the sort of third pass on it. And uh, that'll be – this is the heavy lifting one right now. I'm filling in all the all the narration, and that third draft will be much more of a polish. So uh, looking forward to that. But, yeah, m making progress and uh, really enjoying it. Cool. All right. What's the uh, real quick? What's the latest on the Patterson book? How's that doing? Uh, I I think it's at like eight hundred something in the Kindle store as of this morning. Um, it it obviously dropped off the Times list. Um, I think it it was on there for four or five weeks, um, which is kind of the the norm for him. Yeah. Um, you know, just coming out of the gate at number two. I mean, that that was obviously huge. 
Um, and we're, we're, you know, all just focused on the next one. The next one to come out is uh, August of next year. It's called The Noise. Um, it's his very first horror novel. Um, so this this is going to be interesting. It's already been optioned by uh, E1, Entertainment One. Um, I know they're working on a limited series. I don't know the specifics of that. Um, yeah, this is one of those things that, like, you know, I, they, they tell us we can't talk, you know, about yeah. any of these things. I don't know why they are so secretive in the film and TV world. Um, I already know who the writer is on it, and he's a fantastic person. Um, I've got a pretty good handle on where it's probably going to end up. Um, but E1, um, you know, it's, it's different. Like, sometimes you can get optioned by, let's say, um, well, I think, Christopher Rice, who we have on today, is going to probably talk about AMC. Um, so sometimes AMC or a network will reach out and option it directly, so you know where it's going to end up. Um, but when somebody like E1 picks it up, that's a studio where they're going to film it. They're going to get the episodes in the can, and somewhere along that process, they sell it to somebody. So it could end up on HBO, it could end up on Showtime, it could sh- you know it could end up anywhere. Um, so it's, at, at this point, we don't know. Um, but it's exciting to see that happen with, with that one. Um, stuff is going on with uh, Dracul as well that I'm you know not allowed to talk about other than that. probably. Shouldn't have even said that, um, <laughs> but you know it's, it's nice to hear some of those things going on. You know, with all this craziness in the world, there, there's still some stuff happening along those fronts. Um, meanwhile, I just have my head down and I'm just working on the next project. Nice, excellent, man. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned we have Christopher Rice today. Yes, sir. Have you met him before? I was trying to remember if I did, because um, I've listened to his podcast before, and it's like it's, it's one of those great things where I think I probably ran into him at a conference, probably more, you know, a couple of times, um, but I don't remember any specific instances. Um, I have met his mom before. Um, I, I knew his or met his publicist or his mom's publicist um, when we were in New Orleans doing uh, press for Dracul. Um, she came out to one of our book signings and, and talked to us, and obviously the Stoker family knows her really well. Um, but, uh, the, and Rice had already moved out to California at that point. Um, you know, Christopher Rice has been out there for a while. Um, but I am a fan of his books. I mean, he's a fantastic writer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've been kind of following his career, uh, for a while now, and I know that they're, they're pretty deep as far as, uh, Vampire Chronicles. Um, so I'm curious to see where that's going to end up. Yeah, it's going to be a, a, a fun conversation. He's, he's quite a character. Uh, if, if you guys have ever listened to his podcast, you'll know. Uh, yeah, excellent. Before we get into the interview with Christopher Rice, we just want to remember that uh, Kobo Writing Life empowers you, the author, to take your publishing career into your own hands. You can set your price, keep all your rights, and take advantage of monthly promotional opportunities. So make sure you go and check out our sponsor, Kobo, at KoboWritingLife.com. And we also have a shout out to New Writers Inc. podcast patron, Jeff Elkins, also known as the Dialogue Doctor. So uh, thanks for coming a patron, Jeff. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all of our patrons. Okay. Well, here he is, Christopher Rice. What kind of underwear do you have on right now? Briefs. <laughs> what kind? <laughs> oh, oh, they're a brand called To Exist. And they were popular with the gays in the 90s, yes. which is how I ended up with a whole bunch. <laughs> I haven't had my underwear since the 90s, but you know, it, the, the brand made its impression then. <laughs> nice. nice. You, man, you, you're true to your word. I mean, you made that yeah. recommendation and, uh, and you're wearing them. So uh, yeah. nice. <laughs> Absolutely. That was never a question I ever thought I would ask another author in an interview. So I had, I had to start with that. <laughs> <laughs> So um, tell us what you're working on these days. I know that like the world's gone a little crazy. Things are a bit different than, than they have been. Um, you know, what, what are, what's on your desk right now? Uh, you know, I, what I'm doing for the first time is working on multiple book projects at the same time, which I never thought I could do. But I started and I, I had actually started just before the pandemic <laughs> released itself on all of us here in the United States, at least. I had started working on a project in the morning, which was really the A project, right? It was the, the one that had the quickest deadline and that I was actually going to get paid for. And then there was the B project, which was in the afternoon, which I would usually get to for about two hours after I took a break. And I, this was something I really said to people, I can't, I can't work on two books at once. It's not possible. They were very different which helped one was a, a, a paranormal thriller the other was a romance so it was very different tones different worlds different obsessed areas of the brain if you will um, but since i have been sheltering at home for this long i have found that i am actually able and more inclined to want to move between projects because i need different spaces to park my brain and you know, I'm not trying to say I work 18 hours a day because I don't. I still work about the same number of hours. 
But the, the way to break up the interminable monotony of being stuck in the house was to feel like you were visiting different dreamscapes. Fantastic. Yeah, I, uh, I've heard that from a number of authors that they sort of had this mindset block of like, I can't, I can only work on one project at a time. And yet something happens. Uh, how did you get to that place? Did you have to change? Like, do you physically change where you write for one project to another? Or is it a time thing? How did you make that leap? I, I have to say what really probably initiated it was working in television and seeing how writers who work in television work and seeing the fluidity they need to have to go between developing different projects, working on a pilot script that maybe doesn't go anywhere or maybe it will next year and right now they're staffing on this. I was really impressed by their flexibility and I um, decided to import that into my novel writing or to see if I could import that into my novel writing. And, and some of what the real motivation was, I just had this romance novel that I wanted to write and I wasn't sure I could sell it and I wasn't sure anybody was going to tell me it was a good idea. And it wasn't, you know, the substance of my professional bread and butter right now. But I kept putting it off and I kept putting it off. And I just said, you know what, I'll start futzing with it in the afternoons. That's what I said. You know, I'll start. And actually, I had been told a story a, a while ago. I've never met Stephen King. I'm a fan of Stephen King's. But somebody in publishing told me the story, and it may not be true, that when he was writing Lisey's story, which was a very... Um, outside of his normal kind of ballywick, if you will. In the afternoon, he wrote Cell because it was so familiar to him and it was what he really had done a lot of. And it was like a comfort project that he would land on after experimenting and doing all these different new things in the morning with Lisey's story. I don't know if that story is true. He would have to verify it. But it always stuck with me, that idea of having something that was like a comfort project, you know. So that was part of it. But it was also about... Um, it was about kind of moving around a bit. I had done that before. You know, if I was going to do a day and an afternoon shift on the same project, I would want to write literally in a different place. I uh, had been in a TV writer's room where I had experienced what it felt like to work on the same idea for like eight hours straight with a lunch break, even though it was a lot of us sitting around a room. And and one of the recommendations of the writers on that project was we, we move from one room to another for the afternoon. So... I think that's a big part of it. And I think the thing that I, like a lot of people who sit at desks all the time, I'm always researching the perfect posture, yes. right? What's the perfect posture? And it, I'm no expert, but what I've determined based on my research is there isn't one. The perfect posture is just not being in one posture for too long. So I hope that helps somebody. It's helped yeah. me a little bit. Have you ever tried a standing desk or a converting desk going back and forth like that? I haven't, but what I have done um, to not to much success is piling books up on a counter to basically create a standing desk. And it works for a little while. I'm 6'3", so if, if a standing desk is gonna work, it's gotta come up pretty high. And But I got a lot of books. <laughs> I got a lot of books in my office here. Uh, you know, I could probably, but at a certain point it starts to get wobbly. Well, I'll, uh, when we're done, I'll send you a link to one that I use. It's, it's really cool. It's a converter. So it's got like a hydraulic cool. lift on it. So you can like lift it up and then just drop it back down with like one little lever. It's, it helps oh, a lot. Oh, that's kind of great. Yeah. That's like you said, yeah. I, I, I researched it too. And like I was standing all, all for days and then I read like, well, that's not exactly good for you either. You're right. It's that change yeah. in rhythm, change in posture that you have to kind of continually do. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you get most of your writing done in the morning, in the evenings, or does it matter? I find the most creative burst is first thing in the morning when I'm at peak caffeine, sometimes before I've even showered or made the bed. You know, I've got like a two hour block in there where I really get a lot done. And the, I don't want to say it's the perfect writing day, but, but the, the ones that happen most frequently that are also gratifying are the big burst of words, like the 2,000 words come out in that first two hours. And then the rest of the day is about cleaning them up, polishing them, getting a sense of what the next uh, launch point is. And it doesn't always go that way, you know? And I think when I'm under deadline, I definitely will write at night. And I will, I, it's not because I procrastinate, but there's a, there's a point where the finish line is in sight where it's like, there's just not a lot else in your brain. You know, I'm, I'm single and I live alone, so I don't have kids 
making a demand on my attention. I don't have a partner who needs me to listen to his, you know, what happened to him at work. You know, I, I really, I make my own time and there are downsides to that. So when I can, I will get completely obsessed. Yeah. And do you, when you say like, you know, cleaning up those 2000 words, is your goal to, to kind of have that scene or that chapter as perfect as you can make it? And so you don't look at it again, or, or do you come back to it and do like a revision pass later on? I really am. It's almost like I don't write the books out of sequence, but in some sense, I am a nonlinear writer. And I think the early parts of the creative process are nonlinear. It's why it's why people like note card systems, because they'll get an idea slap it on the note card, throw it up. They're not quite sure where it's going to land in the story, but it, it lights them up. And it's maybe the idea that brought them to the story to begin with, right? Or it's an idea for a scene or a moment. So there's a lot of that. And what I find is that I do go back and reread to get myself back into it a lot. And I know there are a lot of writing gurus, I'm putting in air quotes, who say, no, 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 you can't do that. And I interviewed an author a little while ago, uh, Lisa Scottolini, she's she's great and she's hysterical and very talented, but she said she will absolutely not allow herself to do that because it's way more fun than writing a new scene and she has to keep going. I'm different. I need to, I need to sort of ease back into it. It gets me back into the world. And a lot of times, because it is fun, as Lisa said, it reminds you of what you're enjoying about your idea better than the messy scene you just wrote is. But on top of that, I'm very much about seeing how it all lays in together. And so it's almost, it's like, um, I'm thinking, I'm making a hand gesture here and I don't really know what I'm doing, but it's almost like the old, not dot matrix printers, but the old scanners where you'd have to sort of go back and forth a few times before you would move on. That's kind of how my writer's brain is. Oh yeah, I get that. Yeah, and you're right. I think that was the old dot matrix. I'd have to make a few passes to get all yeah. the ink there, right? Yeah. And that horrible noise, just the worst. <laughs> yeah. Don't miss those days. No. <laughs> well, there was some really exciting news that, that came out uh, earlier in the spring around Vampire Chronicles and AMC. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you give us a, a general update on what's happening with that? Well, not much beyond what's already been shared. Um, it's very exciting. It is, I think the most exciting thing about it is that it is, it means that the Vampire Chronicles and the lives of the Mayfair witches, which are an interconnected universe to a certain degree, they share the Talamasca, which is a, a supernatural research organization of scholars that appears in both series. They're all under one roof, which was not true before and had not been true for a very long time. And the story of how they came to be is one of sort of business intricacies and rights and whatever. But if that was, I think, probably one of the more thrilling parts of it. And also the fact that it's AMC. I mean, I think what AMC did with The Walking Dead, what it did for the perception of horror, but of paranormal television, um, is seismic and has had a lasting impact on the industry. Like I, I really think the first, I'm not a zombie fan, and I, but I really loved the first season of The Walking Dead because for me, it was about so many different things. And I think Frank Darabont is so crazy talented. So that, that this is, and then simultaneously, I mean, that was a long time ago. You've got a show like Killing Eve, which is making this sort of really edgy cultural stamp right now. So there were just, it's really exciting. It, everything about it is really exciting. That, that's true. I, you know, I sound, I, sound, I sound like all the interview subjects from Hollywood who can't talk about the specifics. It's really exciting, but it is. It's truly exciting. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I've, I've been hearing you talk about it on the podcast and, and getting little bits here and there. And, you know, originally what I started thinking about is like, I love my mom, but I don't think I could, <laughs> I don't think I could write a, sh a shopping list with her. So, <laughs> so I got to ask you, like, what, what's the, that working relationship like? Well, you know, what's interesting is that mom and I have never collaborated on something we were building together from the ground up. And I think that would be a different story. But what, what she's given me the opportunity to do and the challenge of doing is to come into her world and see what I can do inside of it. And that was true with the novel uh, Ramsey's the Dam, The Passion of Cleopatra that we wrote together, which was a sequel to her book, The Mummy. And that was true with the TV work that we've done together as well. So in some respects, the challenges are a bit less. Like we're not, because we're, we're not fighting over origin stories. I'm respecting the origin stories that exist. And it's more a question of sequencing and chronology and where, where's, what's the right point of attack for the television medium or the film medium? Is it the same as it is in a book? You know, 
those are those are more focused questions, I think, in some respect. But I, and I'm not ruling out the possibility of building a story whole cloth with her at all. But it is it, it is interesting because she and I creatively have have some different orientations. And I think for a long time, the comparisons or the accusations of nepotism were easier for me to take because tonally our work was so different. The difference was so clear on the page, you know, that I that I was like, just look at the books. It's like, it's clear as one person at a book signing said to me, and I think they were trying to be complimentary. <laughs> he came up and it was this, it was this Boston guy. And he said, yeah, no, I read this book. And it's, it's really clear. His mother didn't help him at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Which you can sort of take as it would be better if she had, you yeah, know, right. it kind of sucks. <laughs> but um, I think it was a testament to how, how different they are. Yeah. Yeah. Nice accent, by the way. That was well done. <laughs> it came out at the end. I had trouble landing at the beginning here. Oh, well, cool. I'm going to definitely be keeping my eye on that. That's uh, that's exciting stuff. I, I wanted to ask you about something um, uh, not really more obscure, but maybe a, a, a few years older because it's, it's really uh, powerful. Um, can you talk a little bit about your involvement with the Upstairs Inferno documentary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I knew the story of what had happened to the Upstairs Inferno lounge or the Upstairs Lounge, it was called in New Orleans. It was, but that's not the right, speaking point of attack. I didn't know the story as soon as I probably should have known the story, given that I grew up in New Orleans and given that I came out of the closet and started going to gay bars when I was about 18 in New Orleans. And nobody had told me that there had been this gay bar full of gay men in the early seventies that had essentially been firebombed and that the deaths were staggering and that the treatment of the dead afterwards, particularly the unidentified dead, was uh, homophobic and wretched and a stain on the city's legacy. I didn't know any of these things until this documentary filmmaker named Robert L. Camina started trying to put together funds for this project. And I saw, I think, uh, a sizzle reel he had put together for um, the, the crowdfunding campaign that he was putting together to, I guess, I, I think the documentary had already been made at that point, but he was looking for funds to tour it to festivals and that sort of stuff. Actually, he was putting the final edit on it is what he was doing. And then shortly thereafter, he contacted me out of the blue and said, would you be willing to narrate it? I have just enough money to fly you out to Dallas, which is where I'm based, and we could put you in a studio. And I said to him, well, how about this? Um, it just so happens I have a podcasting studio out here in Los Angeles, which is uh, fairly well equipped for what you would need to do. Why don't you come out here? The studio space will obviously be free of charge, which will save you some money. And I won't have to go to Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> so we came to this agreement and uh, it was my first time doing a voiceover job. You know, we had been, I had been podcasting with my business partner, producing partner, Eric Shaw Quinn, who's also a wonderful writer for some time. And we had been doing primarily a sketch comedy and celebrity interview podcast in that space called The Dinner Party Show. And we had never really recorded something that was, I don't know, long form or what you would call it. And it was an interesting process. And it was also a harrowing process because when I was doing it, I was not actually seeing the video. I was uh -huh. with a script redoing the text blocks with different line reads and various whatevers. Robert was directing me from the booth but it's like being locked in a room with that really disturbing story for two days. Cause that's about how long it took. And I mean, you're, you're going over the details again and again and again. And it was, it was really a story that needed to be told. I'm glad that I was able to be part of it. And I'm glad that Robert put it out there. And I think that ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, the, the suspect, they never conclusively proved who was responsible for the bombing. But the suspect was a bar patron and a somewhat probably mentally disturbed gay guy who had been thrown out of the bar earlier that evening. So whether or not it was specifically a hate crime is, is not clear. That said, the treatment of the victims, the way they were discussed on local radio saying, you know, did they put the remains in fruit jars, jokes like that, the, the mainstream acceptance of that kind of discussion the unwillingness of the city to release the bodies uh, to friends when families wouldn't take the body. I mean, it was very much typical of the homophobia that was prevalent at the time. And I, it's an interesting 
origin story for the MCC church, which became a, a pretty powerful uh, force in the LGBT Christian community and still is today. And it was a, a, a sort of terrible dress rehearsal for what the church would have to deal with during the AIDS crisis. So all, all of that is a long way of saying I was really honored to be part of the project. And I think it's available to stream on a bunch of different platforms. I'm not sure if it's still on Amazon, but it was for a while. Yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely link to it. It's a it's a tragic story. It's it's shameful in many ways too. I agree with you. Uh, I was I was in the Jiminy, I don't know six seven times before I even realized what had happened there in the seventies. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Like, do you, is there any hope of of that being changed? A plaque or a recognition or something? It just it just seems like it's going to fade into obscurity, and it doesn't seem right. Well, you know, I think there is a plaque outside oh, of the okay. site of the upstairs lounge, so that's good. But I think that's a recent thing. Mm -hmm. I think that the laying of the plaque or some sort of commemorative ceremony around the plaque is depicted in the documentary. So that was also very moving. I think what Robert was able to do, if I'm not mistaken, was also uh, track down some of the lost remains of the victims or to identify one of the victims who had not been... So I think the documentary is 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 having that effect to some good. degree. Yeah, yeah, excellent, great, um, good. I, well, you mentioned the dinner party show. Uh, yes. I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you about Christopher and Eric and the dinner party show. Yeah. Uh, the dinner party show hiatus done. Uh, well, you know, the dinner party show was a, was a high production value. Yeah. It was beyond what most people get from a podcast. We were doing we were doing it live basically and streaming it over our website. We would uh, do celebrity interviews in about 45 minutes of sketch comedy sprinkled throughout the broadcast. When we started, we were a two-hour radio show is really what we were. And then we, after about a year of that, Eric and I met, we said, we got to go down to an hour. This is going to kill us because we were doing it every week. So um, when, the, when we started heavily developing the Vampire Chronicles for television, we said, okay, we're going to put the dinner party show on hiatus, but we really missed doing something on the regular. So we started a new podcast called TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. And it's, it's all talk and it's just the two of us, sort of like what we're doing right now. But we do a regular segment, which was Eric's idea, kind of brilliant, called Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Because we were thinking, what do we do a lot of already that we can just sort of bring on to the podcast? And it's like, well, we watch true crime documentaries out the wazoo. And a lot of them are really trashy and exploitive and can some of them deserve a pretty harsh critique for how they treat the crime and others are actually very moving and powerful. So we decided to do the gamut and we watched them before the episode and our goal is to serve up a breakdown of it so that you don't ever have to watch it if you don't want to, you can feel like you have watched it. But it's different than covering the crime necessarily, which really requires a lot of research and all that sort of stuff. We're asking the question of, do we feel like the victims and the subjects of this crime were served by this hour or half hour of television? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is an emphatic no. And um, But it's been, it, that's one of many things that we do. We're also addressing paranormal uh, broadcasts and all this sort of stuff. It's sort of like a watch club, but we also communicate with our listeners on Facebook and respond to their questions. So it, it's, it's more, it's about, I think no matter what the topic of a podcast is, it comes down to who's doing the talking. Like you either like them or you don't, you know, and it's clear you're a very likable guy. So a lot of people are listening. As are you. <laughs> but, but thank you. But, you know, like Karen and Georgia who do My Favorite Murder, it's really about the thrill of hanging out with Karen and Georgia because they're both so funny and they have such a take on what they're talking about. So all, that that's really what we're doing. And so we've been recording it from home. We found a way to do that. And we've been able to keep up our, our uh, output during this incredibly weird time we're living through. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the obvious questions I get from author friends who are not podcasters is, why the hell are you doing a podcast? Why, why wouldn't you be just writing more during that time? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering for you, you know, maybe go back a few years. Why did you get in, get behind the mic in the first place? That's a really good question. I, it was a while ago. I had a, a book coming out. It was a terrible time in publishing. Borders had just closed. The prices of Kindles uh, had dropped which doesn't mean it was a terrible time in publishing, but it was an incredibly disruptive time for traditional publishers. 
And I was still with a traditional publisher at the time. I'm not necessarily anymore, depending on what your definition of that is. <laughs> and I went to my editor and I said, what's the plan, Stan? You know, I said, what's the, what are we going to do for promotions? And his response was, well, uh, Glenn Beck has a radio show. And I thought, I don't, he knows my politics. He edited Glenn Beck. He edited a lot of conservatives and then he edited me. And a lot of people were not conservative. And I thought, he's telling me to get a radio show. That, that was what he was saying. He's saying Glenn Beck has this promotional platform that he uses to sell whatever he's writing. And what he was saying is you need a platform. And in that moment, that seemed to make a lot of sense. And what was happening simultaneously out in LA, and this is a moment that I think is kind of gone, but everybody thought internet radio was going to be this huge thing. I remember Podcasting that. was like still nascent. Everyone was like, no, it's internet radio is where it's at. You don't need to, it's, you just stream it over. It's going to be in cars. And there were these internet radio businesses that were offering you, they'd say like, you can rent a studio for 70 bucks and we'll stream your show on our website. But then you'd read the fine print and they'd be like, oh, by the way, we own your show. And it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that's not how copyright works. Like <laughs> the storage facility only owns my items when I don't pay my bill. You know what <laughs> right, I mean? Right, yeah. <laughs> so we were like, we went a couple rounds with some people who didn't really seem it wasn't going to work out with. And I turned to Eric and I was like, well, let's build our own studio. Like, you know, like, like let's make our own space. And let's do our own thing. And it was sort of like the sky's the limit, you know, in terms of what we would be allowed to do so long as we could afford the operation itself. And we were using a, a streaming, we were basically using a streaming component that terrestrial radio stations had put into place out of a sense of obligation that they didn't really like. So it didn't have the greatest support. So we were, but it was our primary delivery system. And we really thought the podcast thing was like, yeah, okay, we'll put the podcast up if people exist on it. And it, lo and behold, podcasts became the thing. And who heard of internet radio now, you know? So that's kind of how we got into it. But it was about cultivating a conversation with the people who were reading your books. I mean, maybe it's about getting some new readers, maybe. But I think as a, as, as a, pretty famous author said to me once his experience of social media was not that it got you a lot of new readers, but that it always organized the readers that you had. It was, it was a, a place where they could be targeted and addressed and encouraged to talk to one another. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not so good, but that was really what it was about. And I do think it had a positive impact on, on my career. You know, I really do. And I think that I, I'm in favor now of I'm sort of split on the use of social media in this moment for authors, because I think that um, I think we, the newsletter has not gone away. And the newsletter I like because it's something I own. Facebook can make a decision about the algorithm and suddenly people are not seeing it. But if you're subscribed to my newsletter, you're going to get it in your inbox. There's no variable there. That's incredibly insightful on many levels. Oh, like, I think you know, uh, you're a sharecropper if you if you don't if you don't own the medium, and uh, and it's also really nice to hear that you feel as though you know years later that that uh, that you know radio Glenn Beck style radio show is paying off yeah. for you. You know that that's good to hear because I think a lot of times it's hard to measure effectiveness on on a, on a podcast. You know, like you don't know who's listening, you don't know how many people are listening. I mean, ballpark, you get some idea, but you really don't know. Right. Um, so I think the fact that you feel as though it's it's been worthwhile should should um, should speak volumes to people who, who are maybe are considering a podcast to serve their audience. I think that's the big key, right? Is to serve your existing audience first. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think you should also want to, you should also enjoy doing it. Like, I think there are other things to pursue if the idea of talking it, like me, you can tell, I, I can't, I, it's hard to get me to shut up. <laughs> so like I put a microphone in front of my face and I'm like, you know, let's do it. So it was a natural fit in some sense that could have a, a potentially positive benefit. If the idea of talking into a microphone scares you, I think a more personal newsletter is probably going to be more your style where you give your readers a glimpse inside of yourself. I, I don't know if anybody wants a newsletter that's just by links. Yeah. It's kind of the default mode. But the goal is like, in order to start that conversation, you have to start it, right? You have to be bringing something to it you can be provocative if you want, or you can just be really personal and insightful. It's all sort of up to you. Excellent. Well, I think that's a 
that leads uh, right into a great way to we, we can maybe close the conversation. You've talked a little bit about social media and, uh, and, and, you know, the role that podcasting's playing and, and sort of the publishing industry and whether or not you're on a traditional publisher with a traditional publisher right now. So I think that the bigger question is where is this crazy industry headed? Like what, wh what do you see on the horizon as something either to be looking out for, to be careful about, uh, for authors in general? You know, that's a fascinating question. And it's one I, I give wonderful lectures about in the shower when I'm alone. <laughs> and when it's time to talk publicly about it, I, I second guess my instincts. I think in this moment, we have two economies of publishing. And we have um, a gridlock between the two of them that has been produced by the intervention of the Justice Department some years ago, which um, basically fixed ebook prices in a, in a specific place. Uh, for traditional publishers, or it allowed them to set the ebook prices where they wanted it. And I don't necessarily have some high minded moral judgment of that decision, but I think I, what I have seen it create is two economies of publishing. One that attempts to bring new content to the audience by way of $4.99 and below ebooks, and one that sees um, uh, perpetual cycles of price discountings, things that you would associate with most retail products as the primary engine of promoting books, particularly new books. And um, the traditional model of publishing is more about trying to swing for the fences by securing publicity for projects they are individually and emphatically passionate about at the publisher. It is a more old school way of trying to deliver content. It relies on physical books, it relies on a markup on physical books that's intended to finance the overhead of that cost, which is the shipping and the distribution and all that sort of stuff. I am currently happily with one of Amazon's imprints and I am currently excited and happy about the ways in which they continue to promote and market content on their website. And what it has given me are books have a much longer tail than they used to. You know, um, books of mine, it, You'd used to be in those first, if you didn't get it in those first few months, you were coming off the shelf. They were going to replace you on the shelf with the newer titles. And then those months became weeks. You know, if you didn't get it in the first few weeks, they were returning your books, you know. So there was this continual strain. And I was very attracted to what Amazon was doing for friends of mine, many of whose careers had been declared dead. You know, well, we tried with that author and it didn't work. And then they found this new platform, put their content on it, were discovered, have gone on to have amazing careers. So it put, it put a dent in that idea that if a specific set of publishers take a chance on you and it doesn't work, you're, it's over. You know, all of that, though, is not to um, minimize the incredible effort and to some sense, the, and in some sense, the cost of being an independent author. It really is like you are running a business for yourself. I mean, I spoke of the Amazon imprints and they do that for you, but they're closer to being a, pu a traditional publisher than being an indie author makes you, you know? And there are wonderful success stories. I know about a lot of them in romance in particular, but nobody should underestimate the work and the labor it really takes um, to give yourself a decent shot in the indie author space. There are a lot of platforms. There are a lot of ways to do it. It's very exciting. And I don't mean to, to talk down that side of it either, but it's also a lot of work. And I don't see what future event can break this kind of, um, well, I mean, I talked sort of about three sides to publishing and earlier I said there were two economies, but I think two sides are on, in one economy and one is in the other. I'm not sure what could really break this short of, the collapse of a major retailer, you know, which is not something I would hope for or wish for in any in any economic environment. But um, for, for a long time, people have thought it might be Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble's days might be numbered. Now there's a new head of Barnes and Noble. They're taking a more localized approach to their stores. Who knows? They're using the pandemic to reorganize all that sort of stuff. So I, clearly I'm, I'm capable of lecturing about the lay of the landscape without giving you a prediction. But I think the only thing I can foresee is like a specific collapse in one segment of one of those economies that allows one to take over the other. But I think it is incumbent upon each author 
to look at the lay of the landscape, look at what they're excited about doing. Like some people are excited about making their own covers. Some people want that freedom. Some people want to hire their own editor. Go to it, seize the day, all that sort of stuff. But if you are somebody who thinks that stuff is just going to kill me, then I think submitting your manuscript, going through, you know, to agents and then to publishers, that's okay. That's going to be the tack to pursue. So I don't really know what's next. I don't, I don't see um, Amazon giving up their plans and I don't see traditional publishers going down without more fighting. And we are continuing to see hugely successful blockbuster books come out of traditional publishing. The Nightingale is a traditionally published novel, one of the best-selling books in recent memory. So it's it's neither side is giving way, is what I'm saying, and I I don't know what'll take it. I don't know when it will or if it should. Okay, man. So I'm pretty proud of the first question I had for him. What do you think? <laughs> I think you're going to get yourself in trouble with one of these questions. At some I will. Point. <laughs> I will. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, you did a little bit of research. I think you you knew what was going to come out of that. Yes, uh, I, that was a safe bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, yeah, he, he, you know, a really cool guy. Obviously, yeah. um, very, very informative. Um, he threw a couple things out there that sort of jumped out at me, and one was where he mentioned he couldn't work on two books at once until he figured out how to work on two books at once. And, and it's funny because you know, like we don't really all talk about this, but like we've all kind of stumbled into it. And you know, like I've been trying to do this forever, and you know, I, at, at first, like I tried doing it while I was writing Dracul, and um, I was working on another four MK book at the time, and and for me, those were just two completely different worlds you know to the point where I, I couldn't I couldn't do both at the same time I mean Victoria era England you know even if I tried to do that in the morning I couldn't get my brain to shift you know to modern day you know thriller um, in the afternoon so I've personally kind of found a sweet spot as long as I keep the books fairly similar um, you know as far as you know like so the dialogue isn't too different or settings you know those kind of things are, are kind of similar I, I can pull it off I can work on one in the morning and one in the afternoon um, but you know, like he said, it, it's a very difficult thing to do and it, it helps to, to change things up. You know, like I, I personally, I break for lunch, you know, I do a couple of things and then I come back, but I, I know I couldn't just make that shift if I didn't do that. Um, and I've talked to a number of authors who do what, what he had mentioned where they physically change locations, like in their house, you know, they write in one place in the morning and write somewhere else in the afternoon and it's two separate projects. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It, it took me a while to figure it out. I, I prefer, um, I'm a little different than you. I prefer doing fiction in the morning and then nonfiction in the afternoon. Uh, so I'm, I'm drafting words in multiple projects, but they're completely different projects and it's kind of a, a reset. And I, and I have like my meal in between as well. So it kind of breaks it up a little bit. You know, and the, and the health tip, like that's huge. I don't think people realize, you know, like you guys talked about the perfect posture. Um, and that's, again, it's, it's one of those things that authors don't necessarily talk to each other about, but we, we honestly should, because until I started writing full time and my butt was sitting in the same chair, you know, for six, seven, eight hours at a time, I didn't realize, you know, how much of a toll that actually takes on your body. Right. Um, and Dan Brown, he actually, he gets up every hour. He sets an hour, uh, an hourly timer and gets up and he does some exercises, whether it's push-ups or sit-ups or something, but you know, not only to get his blood flowing, but just to move around a little bit. And I, I think you kind of, you kind of nailed it where you, said that there really isn't a perfect posture it's a mixture of different things like you you know you stand a little bit you sit a little bit you've got to do this you've got to do that um I, I think that that's key but you know it makes me wonder like you know when i when i when i meet some of these guys that have been doing this for a while you know like do they actually sit at a desk all day long you know like they're in their 70s now like have they been doing that every single day like are, are they able to get up like when i get up sometimes like it's it's a chore just to get to the other <laughs> side of my office until everything starts working again yeah. um, you know it's, it's crazy i mean I, I like if i cut out those those five mile runs every day um i i would probably would be just stuck to a chair yeah yeah, and and I think part of the problem is that if it's not easy, people don't do it, and and that's why I mentioned to to uh, Christopher about the the conversion desk that I have because it's literally a button, you know, it it lifts the the whole desk up and then it sets it back down. But if I had to like manually set up the standing desk and then move from that, like I wouldn't do it. I know I wouldn't do it. You know, it's it I sounds can, like too much. I can see him in his office. I mean, he said he was six three with like all these books yeah. on top of a desk and like this MacBook precariously, you know, hanging out of the top, <laughs> swaying back and forth. And exactly, yeah, uh, yeah. You, if, if you're gonna do it, you definitely got to do it right. Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I love too uh, what he he talked about the Vampire Chronicles and and what that was like working with his mom and man that that sounds like it's going to be an exceptional series I can't wait to see that on the big screen 
Yeah, well, honestly, like I've I've read everything that Anne Rice has put out, and um, the Mayfair Witches are probably my my favorite stories. And like, I didn't realize that they were actually combining those storylines for the TV show, and that that to me is very cool. Um, she's got a, a werewolf um a story. I, I think it's two or three books. I'm not sure. I mean, she had in that particular series, but she had some werewolves as well. So she's got a lot of different worlds that she can pull from if if they you know if they're allowed to do that. Um, but you know, he's working with AMC, and you know, like he mentioned, AMC they're they're definitely one of the leaders when it comes to this kind of thing. It's going to be, um, you know, it's definitely going to be something fresh. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, any anything else that caught caught your ear in the conversation? Nah, just that he's you know obviously a, a workaholic like the rest of us. You know, digging into the next project, trying to get through everything that's going on. Some very insightful comments at the end as far as where the industry is going, and you know, the key takeaway from that is basically the same one I get from everybody. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, it's going to take uh you know some something major. I mean, we're obviously in the middle of something major, but you know something's got to give. You know, whether it's you know like he said, you know Barnes and Noble going under. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen at this point because of the hedge fund that's stepped in i think that's definitely breathing some new life into them even with the pandemic um but you know what's going to happen with the publishers i mean we're seeing top five go down to top four and then possibly down to top three and simon and schuster's on the um you know on the, the chopping block right now they're for sale you know like where's that going to end up um if the the world is really closed for another year you know what's that going to do to physical book sales what does that mean for the traditional guys as far as you know where are they going to try and you know fill the the coffers i mean they're going to have to face they're going to turn to ebooks um, which means they're you know drilling down into the market that indies have been dominating for a while now. So it, it's it, it's kind of like a war in a lot of respects. You know, just this tug of war back and forth and back and forth, and and somebody is going to come out on top. It's hopefully going to be some kind of mixture of both. But um, I don't think anybody's got the answer. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. Interesting time. That's why I think it's such a fun question right now because there's just it's kind of a toss up. Like no one really knows where it's headed or or what's going to happen. I would say too on a on a personal level, I I found Christopher just so engaging and so much fun to talk to. I, I could have talked to that guy for hours. Like it was, uh, from an interviewer's standpoint, like he's definitely a seasoned professional on the microphone because uh, it was just an extremely fun conversation to have. He sounds like the kind of guy you want to hang out with next time you visit New Orleans. Like he could yes. take you, he could take you to the real New Orleans. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. So Christopher, I'm going to be calling you in July <laughs> of next year or, or October because we're coming down there for Halloween. <laughs> oh boy. Yep. That could be, that could be trouble. All right. All so right. next week we've got something new. Yeah. Next week is our first, uh, our first topic based show with Zach. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> You say that like it, you're worried. It's 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 scary, frightening, and exciting all at the same time. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can't wait for it to happen. Um, it's obviously something very different for for all of us, but I, I think we're gonna have a good time. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. And uh, Zach's already working on a really interesting topic to kind of kick us off. And yeah, we'll be back next week and, and have a, a really open ended and honest conversation about it. And I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. All right, looking forward to it. Yeah. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.